as you just heard me say in my prayer, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take Matthew 26, verses 1 through 25, but we're going to break it down into little sections at a time. Instead of a big section and then me teaching on that for a while, we're just going to take a few verses, and then we're going to just kind of look at those verses, pull out a couple of nuggets, go on to the next small section, pull out a couple of nuggets, and so on. So the first section we're going to pull out is Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5, and then we're also going to jump to verses 14 through 16. All right, so Matthew 26, 1 through 5, and then 14 through 16. It says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Jump down to verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, in these verses that we just looked at, we're noticing that Jesus is moving from teaching about his return to the earth to preparing his disciples for his coming death and resurrection. In the verse chapter 24 and 25, we've been dealing with what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And then he tells those stories about how to be ready for his return and all that, the parables and so on. Now Jesus, the, the, the context starts to change and Jesus says, you know that it's time for the Passover. Let me read it to you in chapter 26, verse 1. Jesus had finished all these things. He said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now when Jesus says, You know, he's reminding them of what they already knew. First off, they knew that the Passover was in two days. But he also reminds them of what he had been telling them, but they unfortunately still didn't understand it. So when he says, you know that the Passover is in two days, and then the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified, let me take you back to the fact that they knew that the Passover was coming. They still hadn't quite grasped this whole crucifixion thing during the Passover. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jump over to chapter 17. Look at verses 22 through 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distre distressed. So here we've seen him tell them two times. Jumped up to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. So let this sink in for a minute. Jesus has already told them we have recorded three times that we're going to Jerusalem now. But when we go to Jerusalem this time, it's not going to be like other times where we go and we do a feast and then we'll go back to Galilee. This time we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the Gentiles and they're going to kill me. And they're going to crucify me. But three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. 
Even though Jesus kept telling them this, it didn't sink in. That's why when we get to chapter 24 and Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple and not one stone will be left on top of another, this is starting to mess with their heads because they're still looking for him setting up his kingdom. They, the whole crucifixion thing they had missed in the prophecies. And of course, Jesus, like we've just looked at, has in chapter 24 and 25 talked about the sign of his coming in the end of the age. But now he's taking them back to what he'd already been telling them. You know that the Passover is in a couple of days and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be crucified. I tell you one thing, that's an encouragement to me. I don't know about you. Have you ever noticed that there's stuff in the Bible that God's been saying all along and it takes you a while for it to sink in? Is anybody else like me in that way? How many times have I read that and I'm like, oh, now I understand what he was talking about. Relax. If you just have a heart for the Lord and a heart to know what he wants, he will reveal it to you. He'll show it to you. Just walk with him. Don't think you've got to figure it all out. He will show you. And he's patient. And he says to them, get ready. But look at verse 5 of chapter 26. Look at verse 5. Notice that the religious leaders have their plans, not only to have Jesus put to death, but they have also planned when. Look at what it says in verse 5 of Matthew 26. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. All right. So the religious leaders have gotten together in Caiaphas' palace to plan the plot, the, 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 the capture and the murder of Jesus. But they also said, let's not do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar. You're going to see this all through tonight's study. And I'm going to just kind of walk you through it a little bit to prep you for it. They had their plans and how it was all going to play out. But God has his plans and how it was all going to play out. By the way, whose plans are going to come to fruition? God's. Go to Proverbs chapter 16. Because Jesus had just said, in two days is the Passover and they're going to kill me, crucify me during the Passover. Proverbs chapter 16. But as they're planning, they say, let's not do it during the Passover. But Jesus has already said it's going to happen during the Passover. Proverbs chapter 16, look at verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord, is, but the Lord establishes his steps. Go to chapter 19 of Proverbs and look at verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I'm going to encourage you with this at the very end of our study. But even though evil is planning all their stuff, God is controlling how and when it happens. Please don't hear me wrong. God doesn't cause sin. He doesn't orchestrate sin in the sense that he's the one who tempts people to sin or anything like that. The Bible is very clear. But even though man is trying to accomplish his evil plan and Satan is trying to accomplish his evil plan, God is so sovereign, he can still be in control even though evil seems to be winning. They said, as they get together, we're going to plot to kill him, but not during the feast. And God says, I'm going to make sure it happens during the feast to fulfill prophecies. Go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, look at verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God doesn't cause sin to happen. He doesn't tempt people to sin. It's already there in us. But once you've set your mind to go in that direction, you're going to see the opportunities for sin are all of a sudden are just going to crop up all around you. That's why I had you read verses 1 through 5 and then verses 14 through 16. Remember 1 through 5 again. Jesus says, in a couple of days is the Passover, and during the Passover, I'm going to be crucified. Then we see in the verses right after that, the religious leaders get together and they plot to kill Jesus, but their plan is not during the Passover. We don't want to have a riot among the people, not during the Passover. But they've already now gotten together and they've come up with a plan to kill Jesus. Look at again at verses 14, chapter 26 of Matthew, verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So they've gotten together and say, let's plan to kill him. We're not going to have it happen during the Passover. We're ready to get him put to death. And what all of a sudden happens? One of his disciples shows up on their porch and says, what would you give me if I hand him over to you? What did they decide to pay him? 30 pieces of silver. Go to Zechariah chapter 11. Go, to, go with me to Zechariah chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 14. I often wonder if Judas knew of Zechariah chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> Listen to what it says. Zechariah 11, verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus says the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them, for I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the people. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So in this prophecy, this picture that God's having Zechariah do by becoming the shepherd of a people that are doomed to slaughter, he says, I'll tell you what, I, I tried to shepherd you, but you wouldn't let me. 
Favor's now broken. Pay me what you're going to pay me. I'm not going to be your shepherd. Pay me what you're going to pay me. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord told Zechariah, throw it to the house of the potter. Very interesting, kind of crazy at that time, probably to understand prophecy. Jump with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. This is after the crucifixion of Jesus, or as he's going to be crucified. He's already been delivered to Pilate. Then when Judas, verse 3 of chapter 27, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went in and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and brought, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him whom they had, a, price, a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, real quickly, some of you say, wait a minute, that said Jeremiah. We just read from Zechariah. Let me just help you out real quick. The Old Testament was known as, as you know how Jesus referred to it as the law and the prophets and the Psalms? The prophets were all lumped together. They had the law, the first five books written by Moses. Then you had the, the writings, like the Psalms and Proverbs and so on. You also had all the prophets. And in the Hebrew Bible, Jeremiah was the very first book of all the prophets. So when he says, as it was written in Jeremiah, it's talking about the prophets section of the Old Testament. We know it now, it's Zechariah. But isn't that interesting? Years before, hundreds of years before, God has Zechariah pretend to be a shepherd. They reject him. So he says, okay, you're doomed to be slaughtered. Pay me my wages. And they said, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver. And then God says to Zechariah, take that 30 pieces of silver that they paid you and throw it to the potter's field. And what happens? Judas goes to betray them. And they offer him 30 pieces of silver for Jesus' head. After Judas realizes what he's done, he goes and he says, look, I've betrayed innocent blood. And he throws the money in the temple. They said, we're not going to touch that. That was money that was offered to kill a person. It's blood money. You can't put it into the temple. Let's just buy the potter's field. And that money was put toward the potter. Isn't that amazing how God knew how it was all going to play out? By the way, does anybody know what 30 pieces of silver actually represents? Very good. Very good. If you didn't hear what, what Jackie said, it's a slave. Go to, Jer- to Exodus chapter 21. Go to Exodus chapter 21. Look at verse 32. This is the price they paid for Jesus. The price of a slave. In Exodus 21, verse 32, it says this. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So if an ox kills somebody, and it's a slave, the slave owner is to be paid 30 pieces of silver for that slave. That's the price of a slave. Yes, sir? Isn't it interesting that they suddenly knew that they had done, that they were guilty of innocent blood? Well, they, weren't, they didn't realize they were guilty of innocent blood. Judas is the one who realized he was guilty of innocent blood. They knew that they were guilty of shedding blood. 
But, but whether they, they, they felt he was innocent, I wouldn't think that they felt he was innocent. Judas did. Now, I'm not going to deal with this now, but when we get to chapter 27, we're going to deal with whether or not Judas really repented and was forgiven, or whether or not Judas was just really sorry for what he did. Let me just give you a little heads up. Judas is not in heaven. The Bible teaches that very, very clearly, that Judas is in hell. There's a big difference between being sorry for what you've done and truly repentant. I'm just going to say this to you now. If Judas was really repentant, he would have run to Jesus and said, forgive me. I believe now. Instead, all he did was say, man, I feel really bad for what I did. And he went and killed himself. And a lot of people try to say, well, he felt bad. God forgave him. Well, we'll get into the full study of it when we get to chapter 27. And I'll show you. Scripture clearly says Judas went where he belonged. And he is in hell. But that's a message for chapter 27. Go back to Matthew chapter 26. I want to just encourage you with the fact that just as God's ways will be accomplished even though man is sinful, so too will he establish our works if we desire to do good. Go back to Proverbs chapter 16 and look at verse 1. We've already looked at the fact that even though these people were plotting evil, God was in control of everything and he's going to accomplish his purposes. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1. We've seen that back in Zechariah, God knew hundreds of years before, actually he knew that before the beginning of the world, that they were going to do this and how it was all going to play out and how much money he was going to be paid for and how it was going to be thrown to the potter's field and all that. God knew all that. He sees how it all plays out. Even though man's wicked and man's trying to accomplish his wicked ways and Satan's trying to accomplish his wicked purposes, God is still in control and orchestrating and causing his purposes to be accomplished. But in the same way that he can orchestrate the wicked to accomplish his purposes, don't lose sight of the fact that if your heart is desiring to do good and to be used by God for his purposes, he will actually establish your works as well. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Go look at verse 3. Commit, uh, sorry, we'll go to verse 2 again, and then verse 3. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Do you see it? If your desire is to please God and to accomplish God's purposes, set your heart to do that. And just like God can take an evil person's plans and make them work out for his purposes, God can take your and my plans and desire to do good and accomplish his purpose. Rest in the fact that God will do through you what he wants to. All he wants for you to do is just surrender and say, Lord, my heart is to do what you want. I'm listening. I want to walk in obedience to you. Well, let me give you a better way to see it. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As I was studying this and, and encouraged by the fact that even though evil was plotting, God was still in control, the Spirit of God quickly spoke to my heart and he said, Jim, and even more so with those who desire to do good. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. So now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let me ask you a question. Even though the world is planning evil, is God going to take all of that and still accomplish his purposes? If you desire to do good, can he take what you desire and orchestrate it to be, be good for his purposes? We all agree, agree that, hey, he can take the evil plans and make it accomplished for his purposes. 
but we struggle sometimes with whether or not he'll take my good heart desire to do well and accomplish. He will establish you in every good work and word. Stop trying to do for God and hope he's pleased. Just do what you believe he's leading you to do. Watch him supernaturally empower it. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to tell the story tonight. I actually preached it at First Merritt Island a few weeks ago. I'm going to be bringing a message this Sunday at LifePoint. They have a service at 9 a.m. and another one at 11 if you're interested. I'm going to be bringing a message that I preached at Merritt Island, but preaching it again over at LifePoint on this coming Sunday, two services. And at the end of this message, I'm going to share a story about how God took some people's simple little act of goodness and kindness toward Becky and I, and how he supernaturally had it turned into something bigger, bigger and better than they would have ever dreamed. They thought that they were doing something nice. They had no idea the supernatural way that God established it into an amazing work. That's for the message for next week, though. I can't take the time to take you there tonight. That was just a commercial. Go to Matthew 26. Look at verses 6 through 13. It says, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now before we break this section down and pull some things out of here, I need to clarify something for some people, because this is a passage that's given some people a little bit of a bellyache. Go with me to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read to you an account in Luke chapter 7. Verses 36 through 50. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to sound like it's the exact same story. It's not. In Luke chapter 7, look at verses 36 through 50. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven love little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with them began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Sure sounds like the same story, doesn't it? But it's not. Even though they're both in the house of a Pharisee, even though it's still the alabaster flask of ointment and all, it's not the same story. The setting is different. The response of Jesus is different. In one, he's forgiving her sins, and everybody's like, Who's, who can forgive sins? But when this other episode that is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke's account in Luke 7, is a different story, 
Different place, different time of Jesus' ministry, different response of Jesus. But in Matthew and Mark and Luke's account, we see that that happened in the last week of Jesus' life on the earth, right before he went to the cross. So chapter 7 and of Luke and the Mark, Matthew, and John accounts are not the same. Now, Mark and John's account give us some more information. And John's account tells us that the woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Go to, go to um, John chapter 12. Look, we'll look at John's account here. Go to John chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 8. In John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with them at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, whom he was, was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment... Uh, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, John's account says that Lazarus, sorry, that Judas Iscariot's the one who's upset about the waste of money. But go back to Matthew's account According to Matthew's account, who was upset about the waste of money? Very good. All of them. Look again at verse 6 of Matthew 26. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But here we see that it was all of the disciples, not just Judas. That's why it's valuable. Again, I'm saying to you over and over, look at the, all the gospel accounts. Compare them. Look at them. And you'll get a fuller picture. Now, I, I want to deal with something real quick. We're all like the disciples. Uh, let me say, explain what I mean by that. Every one of us, because of this flesh that we're in, we all want to be God still, even though we're saved and forgiven and working our way to become more like Jesus as he's doing his work in us, conforming us into his image, you need to acknowledge this problem that you have and I have. We're just like the disciples where we righteously will jump to conclusions. By the way, have you ever noticed that just about every time that the disciples righteously jumped to conclusions, they were wrong? Let me say this to you, having been a pastor for years and knowing a whole lot more than people in the church have known, because we pastors deal with a whole lot more depth of what's going on in people's lives. But how many times over the years have we had church members righteously, in quotes, indignant about what's happening in someone's life when they don't know the whole story? By the way, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. Peter righteously indignant, says what? I'm not going to let that happen to you. He thought he was speaking for the truth. He was wrong. Go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, look at verses 49 and 50. 
Luke chapter 9, verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. They were righteously indignant. They weren't a part of our group. They didn't have the denominational tag that we have. We told them that they were wrong and we were right. Jesus says, guess what? You're wrong. I'm going to get my stuff done and I'm going to use people that you didn't think I'd even use. You've always heard people say over the years when we get to heaven, we're going to be really surprised at who's there that we didn't think was going to be there. And the people that aren't there that we thought were. Let me say this to you again. Your natural reaction, your first reaction is to be righteously indignant when you see things happen. You read stuff on Facebook. You watch the news. Your first reaction is to be, well, that's just not right. Chances are you're probably wrong. Look at the very next verses. Verses 51 through 56 of Luke 9. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him and who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Here he's going through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem. And because of the hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews, when they found out that he was going to Jerusalem, they didn't want him to go through their town. James and John said... Do you want us to call fire down on them? They need to be dealt with. This is wrong. This is sin. And Jesus says, you're wrong. Relax. I'm going to accomplish my purposes. Vengeance is mine. Let me just say this to you again. I cannot say it enough. I'm speaking to myself as well. You're going to have opportunities where you're going to feel like you're righteously indignant and you know how it should have been handled. Chances are you're Wrong. Now, does that mean we don't ever deal with sin? No, the Bible actually says that Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual, if you see a brother in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore them gently. When we do point out sin, it's for the purpose of redemption and reconciliation, but it's only to be done by those who are spiritually mature and those who have prayed over it for a long time and those who have let the Lord show you how to do it in a gentle way. But when we think this isn't right, that's not right. They shouldn't be dressed that way. They shouldn't be acting like that. They should be doing this. They should wear masks. They shouldn't wear masks if they really trust the Lord. Why are they afraid of COVID? They should be, they should be trusting the Lord if they're going. And all these different attitudes, everybody's righteously indignant. And God says in Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and the Lord's able to make him stand. I'll get my stuff done. And let me just remind you, Judas was upset about it because he was more worried about the money being lost because they could have had that much money in the treasury and he could have stole some more from it. But on top of that, we see from Mark and Matthew's account, all the disciples were indignant. And I'm just going to say it to you again and let the Spirit take it from there. Your first reaction probably is going to be wrong when you get righteously indignant. Take a deep breath and say, Lord, if this is something that I'm to deal with, show me. If not, May I just let it go and trust that you're going to be in control. Those of you that are parents, you became a better parent when you didn't try to fix every little thing right away when you saw it. By the way, if you were a parent who every time you saw a little thing that you thought needed to be fixed in your child's life and you tried to correct it every single time, you were, you were a horrible parent. Your kid probably didn't like being around you. 
Even though your heart might have been good, you think and you're helping, but you're correcting, correcting, correcting. As you matured in your walk, you probably came to realize, you know what? I'm going to save my fights for the times that it's important. I'm going to let this one go for now. That's not as big a deal. And you learned how to parent with grace. And when it was time, you would deal with certain things, but you dealt with it at the right time in a gentle and a loving way. But if you tried to fix everything you saw right when you saw it, you probably did more damage than good. And the Christian church today, unfortunately, has been righteously indignant about all sorts of things. I'm just going to say it to you again. Chances are your first reaction is wrong. Acknowledge that. Acknowledge that. Go back to Matthew chapter 26. Look at verses 17 through 25. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. All right. Go with me to Luke's account in chapter 22. I love how Matthew brings out that they, they come to Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 17. Uh, the disciples said, where will you have us prepare to eat the Passover? But Luke's account gives us a little bit more information. Let's go to Luke chapter 22 first, starting in verse 7. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Stop. I love how Luke brings out a little extra to the story. Matthew's account said they come to Jesus and say, where would you have us prepare it? But Luke tells us that it didn't start that way. It started with Jesus going to Peter and John and saying, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Now, I'm just going to ask you this question. If Jesus came to you and said, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover, what would you do? I mean, Jesus looks to you and says, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Most of you all would just go to make preparation, wouldn't you? I mean, good grief. Jesus says, go make preparations. Yes, sir. Um, I need a room. We're going to need a caterer. We're going to figure out how many people are coming. We're going to have to do all. And you would do your best to go do it for Jesus. But Peter and John, who have been with Jesus now for three years, have started to realize that whenever Jesus gives a command, it's a test. Are you going to go out and do it in your own strength? Or are you going to learn the lesson of the loaves and let me do it through you? Remember how he said in the feeding of the 5,000? You feed them. And they all tried. Pulled their calculators out. Eight months wages won't be enough to give everyone a bite. And I don't know how we're going to do this. And he says, relax, relax, relax. I just have to sit down in groups of 50s and 100s, take this little boy's lunch and go pass it out and watch what happens. And he supernaturally shows his power, his provision. Oh, they didn't learn the lesson. And he retaught the lesson by having them go across the lake and they couldn't get across the lake. And he walks on the water to display his power. And again, they're amazed. And they still didn't learn the lesson that it's him and not them. And then he goes and he feeds the 4,000. And they're the ones who say, hey, it's been... 
Jesus said, they've been with me three days. Let's send them away. So they, uh, let's feed them before they go so we don't send them away hungry. And they, of course, say, how are we going to feed all these people? But by this point, they've come to realize when Jesus says do something, he's trying to teach them, are you going to do it with my power? Or are you going to do it in your own strength? And I love how Peter and John don't go to make preparations. They say, where would you have us go make preparations? Keep reading here in Luke 22. Luke 22, verse uh, 10. He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. I'm just going to say this to you as nicely as I can, and I'm speaking to myself as well. We followers of Jesus, we children of the almighty God, the ruler of the universe, whose power is more than we ever could imagine, ask or think. We followers of Jesus have missed out on so much that he, more that he had for us in our walks with him because we've tried to go do for Jesus in our own strength instead of resting in his power. He says, go make preparations. They say, no, we're learning finally. You probably already have the plan because every single time you wanted something done, you already had in your mind how you wanted it to be done. Hey, Joshua, I'm going to have you go defeat Jericho, but don't run off. Here are your very specific instructions. Oh, you're crossing the, the, the Jordan. Here are your specific instructions. You're crossing the Red Sea. Here are your specific instructions. Moses, I want you to use you to have water come from the rock. Here are your very specific instructions. Every time God wanted something done, he not only decided how, he already knew who, and he had the plan. And they came to him and they said, where would you have us prepare it? I almost pictured Jesus winking at him and saying, good for you. You passed the test. And then listen to what he says. He says, you're going to go into the city. You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. That didn't happen very often. Mostly it was women. Whatever house that guy goes into, you go into that same house and you find the master of that house and you say, where's the guest room? that I may, the master wants to know where we can prepare the supper, the Passover. And he'll lead you to an upper room, and you'll find it what? Furnished. Too many of us have been killing ourselves trying to serve God and hoping he's pleased. Instead of just doing the simple little thing that he's asked us to do and watching him supernaturally make it turn into more than we ever could have dreamed. Go to Jeremiah chapter 10. Look at verse 21 and then verse 23. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 21 and then verse 23. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. Look at verse 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. You know, most of our churches today aren't being, doing what we're doing through prayer and asking God, what would you have us do in this situation? But most of our churches are governed today by the Constitution and the bylaws and the church manual. And you even get church people that are righteously indignant 
who are thinking it's their job to make sure we follow the Constitution and the bylaws. But we don't walk with the Lord. Some of your translations don't say stupid. What do they say? Dull-hearted. Brutish, if it's King James. Senseless. Stupid's good, isn't it? Stupid's... The shepherds are stupid. Why? They don't inquire of the Lord. Folks, you've heard me say this before. It's one of the first chapters of the book that I wrote on the principles of a God-centered church. I challenge you to show me anywhere in Scripture where God did something the exact same way twice. We actually see in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verses 17 through 22, or 25, 17 through 25, 2 Samuel 5, David becomes the king of Israel. And the Philistines hear about this and they go gather in the valley of Rephaim and David goes down to the stronghold and David prays a prayer. God, would you have me go against the Philistines? He says, go straight in, I'll give you the victory. And they do. They go straight into the valley of Rephaim. They defeat the Philistines and wipe them out. Verse 22, the very next verse says this. It says, and the Philistines gathered yet again in the valley of Rephaim. But David does something that we don't do. He didn't assume that how God did it last time is how God's going to do it this time. By the way, those of you who have been in church for any long period of time, have you ever heard people complaining because we're not doing it the way we used to do it? People fight to keep doing it the way it's always been done? Well, yeah. <laughs> you, I need to go to your church if you, if you say never. But David doesn't assume that even though it was tremendously successful, that that's how God's going to do it again. And the Bible says he inquired of the Lord a second time. And those of you that know the story say, God says, this time don't go straight in, go around behind them. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the trees, that means I've gone ahead of you to give you the victory. Exact same people, exact same valley, exact same situation. And the method God chose in each instance was different. The shepherds are stupid. They don't inquire of the Lord. And all their flock is scattered. Go to Isaiah 50. Isaiah chapter 50, look at verses 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. In other words, this is why I'm walking in darkness here. It's not sin. It means you don't know what to do. You can't really see what the next step is. Those who walk in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, go ahead, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have or will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. You see it? You're in the dark. You don't know what to do. And by the way, that's all of us on a daily basis. God's designed it that way so that we'll check with him on a daily basis. You've gone through cancer. You're going through it now for your second time. It's going to be different this time. And he's going to be doing things and walking you through. But he continually puts us in these situations of, Lord, what now? I thought I was already done with this. What now? And he says, I'll show you. I'll show you. You want to come up with your own flashlight? You can come up with your own torch? God says, go ahead. I'll let you walk into your constitution and bylaws. I'll let you come up with your own plan. But here's what you'll get from me. You're going to miss out. Folks, let me just encourage you. I love the fact that Jesus told his disciples, go make preparations. And they said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. How would you have us do it? And he says, when you let me do it and you follow my plan and I walk you through it, I'll supernaturally do things that you couldn't even imagine. Now to him who's able to do far more than we ever could imagine, ask or think. According to his power 
that's available to us. Notice also, though, that the disciples back here in Matthew 26 have no idea as to who it is that Jesus is talking about when he says that one of them will betray him. Do you notice that? Not one of them was like, we know who it is. They're all like, is it me? By the way, I love the fact that they're saying, is it me? That's actually a humble response. They didn't sit there and go, well, I know it ain't me. They humbly said, is it me? That's what David prayed in Psalm 139. Lord, you search my heart. You show me if there be any wicked way in me. And you lead me in the path of righteousness. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 said, I don't even examine myself. If I did, I wouldn't give myself a fair assessment. I'm going to leave that to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with an attitude that says, my righteously indignant first attitude and first reaction probably is wrong. Lord, show me. Now, don't beat yourself up. Oh, I'm a so horrible person. I'm a horrible sinner and I'm no good. And no, 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 no. But just be willing to acknowledge that you have to daily lay your flesh on the altar, which is your reasonable service, and daily say yes to the Spirit and He'll show you His will. You might have had a good day today where you walked in the Spirit. It doesn't mean tomorrow you're not going to just automatically do it. You're going to have to humble yourself on a daily basis and say, Lord, I want to walk with you today. I know how my flesh wants to be in control and I want to lay it down and you walk me through. Now, Judas, who at this time has already taken the money to betray Jesus, he asks, is it me? Now, do you think Judas is asking because he doesn't know that it's him? No, of course. He already knows it's him. He's already taken the money. Why do you think he's asking Jesus, is it me? He wants to know if Jesus knows that it's him. Of course, he does. Go to John chapter 13. I want to tie everything up tonight by looking at something that happens in the upper room in John's account in John 13, verses 21 through 50. This jumped off the page as I was doing my study for tonight's study, and I've been seeing the pattern throughout all these verses, how even though man had his plans, God was orchestrating everything. Something jumped off the page at me. Look at John chapter 13, verses 21, sorry, through 30, not through 50, through 30, 21 through 30. John 13, verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Judas was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Who was it that told Judas when it was time to go get the religious leaders to have him arrested? I'd never really thought about that before. Judas didn't go do it on his own time. And actually, it was Jesus during the Passover who turned to Judas and said, go now. 
I know what you've done. What you're going to do, you've already plotted. You've already made your plan. The one whom I kissed, that's the one. Go do it now. Judas went off. Satan entered him and took full control. Judas went off and he did it. But Jesus was the one who told him when. They had planned it after the Passover. But God was in control. And all was happening under his timing and his power. Go back to Matthew 26. We're going to jump through some verses. And look at the words all the way through this whole story that show that Jesus is in full control of the whole thing. Matthew 26, look at verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So he already knew exactly when it was going to happen. Look at verse 18. In Matthew 26, verse 18, he, sa he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says what? My time is at hand. It's time. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Go to verses 47 through 54. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one who I kiss will, is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once, and he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. By the way, Peter was righteously indignant with his sword, wasn't he? And he was wrong. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then... Should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I can't stress it to you enough tonight. We have within us, because of our fallen flesh, even though we've been redeemed, chances are our first reactions of righteous indignance is wrong. Just assume that it's wrong. And if it's something that God is brewing, He'll show it to you and you'll have an understanding of how to deal with it in love and gentleness and peace. But most of the time when we see stuff and we think, that's not right, that's not how I would handle it, those people should be doing it differently, you're probably wrong. And humble yourself and say, Lord, am I someone that would betray you? Is my heart really not fully towards you? I'm not going to examine myself and kill myself trying to figure it out. You show me. But I humble myself and say, I know who I am and I probably would do that if it wasn't for your grace. On top of that, even though they had all these plans, they're making secret meetings in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, and when, they get, when they're going to do it, Jesus is controlling every little thing. I want to close tonight by reading to you from Psalm 37. Actually, let's go to Acts 13. I think we've got time for Acts 13 and then Psalm 37. Acts 13, 26 through 41. Acts 13, 26 through 41. 
Paul's preaching and he says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, did you catch that? And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, by the way, don't miss that, the wicked people are serving the purposes of God in their generation. But David, who was a righteous man, served God's purposes in his generation as well. God can use us for good. And he's going to orchestrate that if we trust him. He, but after he had done that, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and his body decayed. That's why it says he saw corruption. But whom, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Don't miss that last part. He said, everything that was written in the prophecies by God came to fulfillment at the exact moment and the time and the second that God had planned. Oh, not only that, he also accomplished everything he wanted to accomplish through David and his generation for good. But there's another prophecy, and that prophecy says that there's going to be some who don't believe this. Don't let that be fulfilled in you. Don't let that be fulfilled in you. Is God going to get his stuff done? Yes. Does man have a choice? Yes. Man has a choice whether or not... God's going to use them for good, and they respond. If they even are planning evil, God's still going to get his stuff done, but those individuals are going to be judged for what they've done. They're going to be punished for what they've done. You have a choice. Is God in control? Yes. Well, if God's in control, I really don't have a choice. Yes, he is, and yes, you do. Don't try to figure it out. It's bigger than our heads can fathom. But just like God can use the evil for his accomplished purposes, he can use the good. Let's close tonight with Psalm 37. Verses 1 through 40. Psalm 37, verses 1 through 40. I'm just going to read it to you, and we're going to close with this. This is such an encouragement in the days that we're living. You read, if you read my devotional for the end of the year newsletter, how a lot of people are saying, well, 2020 was bad. I can't wait for 2021. It'll be better. There's no promise it'll be better. Yeah, 2020 might be a trailer for 2021. You're right. Look at Psalm 37, verses 1 through 40, though. Let us be encouraged by this. Listen to what it says. Oh, uh, David wrote this. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they'll soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. 
Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and then gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter into their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain, remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is, of his God is in his heart, and his steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him to be condemned when he is brought up to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Isn't that an encouragement in these days? Is wickedness increasing? Yeah. Is it spreading? Yeah. Does it look like the evil's winning? Sure. But God's still in control. And He wants to use you and use me in these days. Take your eyes off a of man. Take your eyes off of the people around you and you put them back on the Lord and you just walk with him and he will establish your blamelessness and your righteousness. And one day we'll all be back on this earth in the new heaven, eventually the new heaven and the new earth, but before that in the millennial kingdom and we'll inherit the land as he comes to rule and reign in righteousness. And those who are waiting will be with him. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.